From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official health care provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Florida continued their trend of playing tight games last weekend against LSU, but for the first time this year, they saw a nail-biter go the other way. An extra point proved to be the slimmest of margins in the 17-16 loss to LSU, but the beat goes on with another massive game in the swamp set for Saturday night against Texas A&M. On today's show, we'll discuss the disappointment from LSU, the rare visit from the Aggies, and yes, those jerseys, with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry, sophomore linebacker Voshan Joseph, and defensive line coach Chris Rumpf. But first, it was a heartbreaker in the swamp as Florida's rally to overcome a 14-point deficit came up just short due in part to a missed PAT, the first of Eddie Pinheiro's charmed Gator career. So before looking ahead to the historic visit from Texas A&M, we asked Scott and Chris for their key takeaways from homecoming. Well, Adam, I mean, anytime you, uh, you know, you lose at home to uh, a team that was, you know, a lot of people's views was reeling. I mean, LSU was coming off that home loss to Troy. Uh, the Gators have won three in a row in the SEC. Uh, they were sitting atop the SECs, and they lose 17-16. And, you know, everybody's going to look back at the extra point that Eddie Pinero missed. But that, that's not really why they lost. It was the fourth quarter, the offense. Uh, you know, right when they finally got the offense going in the third quarter, they just turned it back off in the fourth quarter, you know, picking up, what, 37 yards on their three drives there with a chance to go ahead. And, and it was a game, really, that after they turned the momentum in the third quarter, you just sensed the swamp was rocking. Uh, they had all the momentum, and you really thought the Gators were going to come back and win and send everybody home happy. But, you know, I give some credit to LSU. I mean, they did a good job of coaching in that game. They gave Gators trouble early with a lot of their jet sweeps and uh, just different things on offense. And uh, the bottom line is, Adam, now it kind of makes the rest of the season an unknown. I, I thought these next two games against LSU and Texas a and I thought if Florida won both of those, then people are going to start looking at them entirely different. But now that they've lost one, now they're coming in against the Texas A&M team that is going to be another tough game for Florida. The season's right, kind of like hanging in the balance right now. Which way are they going to go? And I think those questions are there because of how LSU turned out. What we saw offensively, we saw uh, Florida's uh, running game showed up for the fourth week in a row, at least 168 yards for the last four weeks. You know, they had a terrific day from Malik Davis, another nice day from uh, Michael Pirine. Third and three, fourth and three at the end of the game, you know, they opt to pass uh, rather than run. Obviously, they saw something that maybe they thought they could convert on the on those plays. But uh when you look at 108 yards passing, it was the fewest yards since I think it was 93 yards against Alabama in 2014. Florida's now thrown two touchdown passes in three games in the swamp this season. You know, the passing game has to get better. Uh, they know that. Felipe Franks knows that. After the game, he was remarkably uh, took a lot of the blame on himself and said he, he's got to be a leader of this team and he has to be one of the focal points to fix things. And obviously that's going to fall on the coaches as well. And um, like Scott said, I mean, the, the narrative of the season has changed with that loss because three straight home games, you know, you want to defend your turf. And the Florida would have been in great shape had they been able to do that. 
especially going into a bye week with Georgia after that. And Georgia playing as they're playing spectacular. But uh, now it almost looks like a, a must win just to gain that momentum back before the bye week. And uh, Texas A&M probably has a little bit of confidence, at least playing uh, Alabama close, closer than anybody has this season. One of the, the core things about last weekend was the Tom Petty tribute. It went viral. It was on national news. The entire swamp breaking out and won't back down. I'm curious what, what you guys thought of that as you're up in the press box kind of surveying that from a, a bird's eye perspective. Well, I mean, if you were in the stands, Adam, it was a special moment. I mean, uh, Tom Petty, not only is he a, you know, a rock icon, the guy sold more than 80 million records. He's known worldwide, but he's from Gainesville, Florida, and a lot of Gator fans, a lot of the people who are out there in what is known as Gator Nation are huge Tom Petty fans, and it showed with that tribute. I mean, obviously, his death was somewhat shocking. You know, there was nothing out there about him being sick. He just finished up his 40th anniversary uh, tour with the Heartbreakers a few days prior to his death, and the I just thought it was a, a nice moment. And you're right, it went viral because of how the fans really got into it. And uh, you know, I was up in the press box kind of live streaming it uh, on Periscope. And uh, I was just sitting there thinking, wow, this is going to turn out to be a pretty magical moment. I didn't know that, you know, how big it would become, but it certainly got a lot of play uh, at different media sites and stuff that the Gators normally don't get covered on. So, uh, Again, I, I think it was a, a nice gesture by uh, Florida, and it's one that Scott Strickland uh, has hinted at that it's you know, going to be part of a tradition if the fans want it, which they were overwhelmingly in support of it on social media. So I think we're going to see that you know, become kind of a, another tradition here at uh, the Swamp. Getting back to the, the football side of things, Chris, you had a story on FloridaGators.com just about the offense and some of the numbers as it relates to the pace of play, the number of plays run, possession. Uh, what is Jim McElwain planning to do to address some of these concerns, which he, he obviously knows that those are things they have to work on as well. What, what's the plan in terms of that? Well, I mean, it's got to be done at practice. So talk about sense of urgency. Sense of urgency during games uh, starts with sense of urgency of practice, and maybe it has to be better there. I, uh, we're not out of practice all the time. So uh, I would imagine that they're going to be a lot more crisp with regards to stuff that even Felipe Franks, even uh, Freddie Swain talked about getting the play in. Tyler Jordan talked about it. I think he mentioned how like Martez Ivy was doing some shouting while he was on the field. Let's get the play in. Let's get the play in. So um, that's where it starts. Get the play in and execute the play. And uh, you know, I, I go back to the imbalance nature of, of the offense. I mean, you just can't throw for 108 yards. There has to be more productivity. And granted, you don't have Tyree Cleveland. Kadarius Tony got mm-hmm. hurt. Um, so there's some issues in that regard as far as uh, your weaponry. But you got to find other guys. I mean, if had saying around here a while, next man up or what have you. And uh, all football teams have that. You just got to go find playmakers. And at the same time, uh, you know, you got to maybe let Felipe Franks go back there and try to turn the ball loose a little bit. Again, I, I, did any tight ends catch passes, Scott? I do not believe. I mean, they were absent after, uh, you know, having a pretty good week the week prior with, you know, we saw Moral Stevens. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was part of the uh, missing piece uh, on Saturday. I mean, I think, Chris, they only, what, 10 of 16 overall? Yeah, 10 completions. Yeah, so only 10 completions. So you like to see that number, quite frankly, double. Right, and the longest pass completion, I believe, was for 18 yards. So, I mean, there, there just has to be more. They talk about explosive plays. There just has to be more of them. And, uh, you know, that's the root of the offense starts there because, you know, Texas A&M is a, is a good running team. They're going to come in here and probably try to control the clock a little bit. They got an all-purpose quarterback in Kelly Mond, a kid from Florida that's pretty damn good. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of a similar 
kind of team they'll face this week as they faced last week. So they'll, they'll get a chance to see if any of these upgrades, any of these things they're focusing on will carry over. Injury-wise, where do the Gators stand entering this weekend, and how do they compensate for the significant losses that are piling up due to both the injuries and also, of course, the, the lingering suspensions? Well, you kind of resemble a match unit after the uh, LSU game. I mean, yesterday, Jim McElwain started going off his list of uh, his injury report. And, you know, a lot of names on there, a lot of key names. It sounds like Nick Washington's going to be out this week with his recurring shoulder issue. Obviously, as Chris talked about a moment ago, freshman Kadarius Tony has a shoulder also. Uh, he's highly questionable as the term McElwain used. We'll know more later in the week, but... There's just a lot of key guys right now. Jeremiah Moon is banged up with an ankle. Obviously, Tyreek Cleveland, we don't know if he's going to be back against the Texas A&M. And Brett Hagee, the offensive line, is in concussion protocol. So uh, he's a, a guy who, against Vandy the week before, was named freshman offensive lineman of the week in the SEC. So you're losing some key pieces there if all those guys can't go. And, you know, it is that point in the season, Adam, where I think the depth issues, the concerns that, we all know have existed there to some degree. They have tried to not use those as excuses, but I think it's starting to catch up with them in some ways. I mean, you're you're looking at, you know, you're playing opponents with 85 scholarship players. They're right now dealing uh, with about 72 or, uh, you know, they've lost some guys to injury. Uh, so, yeah, they're shorthanded. I mean, that's the only way you can say it. But at the same time, they still have players that are here because they're talented, because they uh, they can do stuff on the field. It's just maximizing those guys, and the, it goes back to a lot of just executing. I mean, it's, it's no secret. I mean, they didn't execute at the end of that LSU game very well, and uh, it was a big topic on social media afterward. Jim McElwain said yesterday, you know, that falls back on him ultimately when your team doesn't execute the way it needs to. And uh, I think there there's a lot of things, the injury execution that – can't overcome the injuries, but you can get better on execution. I'm sure that's a focal point in practice this week. So we're not used to seeing Texas Sam and Florida play. That much we know for sure. But from what we've seen from AM, what are the expectations for what they'll bring? They obviously had a really tough start to the year. They blew that historic lead against UCLA, but since then they've sort of righted the ship. Yeah, I mean thirty four to ten, I think they were up, and then UCLA came back and scored five touchdowns in the last quarter and a half to beat them 45-44. Just uh, talk about the, the wagon circling in College Station after that. I mean, the, but having said that, I think they went out and won four straight games. Um, they played Alabama, you know, close enough. You don't want to say it was, a, it was a moral victory, and they did score a touchdown, I think, with 17 seconds left in the game. Final score was 27-19, but Alabama didn't necessarily go up and down the field. I don't even think they had 400 yards. So Alabama's the number one offense far and away in the league. So it's it's going to be it's going to be a tough out for the Gators. It's it's a tough out for them not only on the field, but I mean they got to push through a little bit of this uh, mentally. There's going to be some confidence issues and what have you, and they got to talk through it in the locker room. And someone's got to step up and be leaders, and someone's got to step up and make plays. Adam, I can't stress it enough. I mean, I, I'm not saying anything that the fans aren't saying. I mean, my Twitter feed blows up after that story posted yesterday about mm. the the pace of play. You know, people are saying, oh, that's, yeah, yeah, they should they, they should address that. They should address it a long time ago. So the natives are restless here, right, Scott? Yeah, a little bit after that performance. I mean, like I said earlier, it was a disappointing loss, and now it really doesn't get any easier with Texas A&M. You know, Jim McElwain's referenced a couple of times uh, Kellen Mond, a quarterback, you know, kind of a different quarterback than they faced this year. Elusive, uh, can do things with his legs and his arm. 
against Alabama, you know, he threw for uh, 237 yards, but uh, they just couldn't get anything going on in the run game. They only had 71 yards rushing. But, you know, you look at the stats from that game, I mean, they had 308 yards, Alabama's 355. So it is closer in that respect than a lot of uh, opponents who uh, go against Alabama. And they ran 69 plays, which is 15 more than what Florida ran in the game uh, against LSU. And that speaks to just what Chris was talking about, the pace of play. If there's anything you can look at in this game on Saturday night, I think from Florida's perspective, that maybe can um, point to a potential outcome or to change. I mean, I think it's going to be the pace of play. Is it going to be faster? Because it, it needs to be. I think they are ranked 125th in the country in plays per game. And uh, you're just you're just having less opportunities than the mm. other team. And uh, that's hard. I mean, if, and if you're not executing those plays at a high level, the less you have, the less chance you have of, uh, you know, scoring and, and winning games. So uh, it's uh, kind of a simple solution or, that they're facing right now. They just need to be quicker, need to execute better. And uh, But certainly, Texas a and I mean, this is a team that's coming in here with pretty good track record, even though they're, they have lost a couple games. They hung hung tight with Alabama. And they blew that opener against UCLA. Uh, they can definitely score. Yeah, the offense gets so much the attention. That's nothing new. What are your guys' thoughts on the defense at this point and the way that they're growing as such a young unit? I thought the tackling was a little bit better. There's there certainly some difficult missed tackles. Uh, the one the tight end Morrow ran over uh, Nick Washington on a play. I think Nick got hurt on. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big uh, drive sustaining first down. I think for that for uh, LSU. I think they ended up scoring on that drive. But, I mean, you got to play with the hand that you're dealt. I thought that uh, Florida would be in a good position if they were able to clamp down a little bit on, on LSU's running game and try to make them beat them through the air. You'd rather be one-dimensional. But they found some success on the edge with some of those jet sweeps. And, actually, Florida, I thought the defense did a good job adjusting to that at halftime and kind of found a way to kind of curtail that a little bit. But McElwain talked about third-down conversions. I think uh, LSU was 6-for-14 on third down, whereas Florida was 2-for-9. He said that was a difference, and certainly in a one-point game you can make that argument. I think they're fine. They're in good place. They are lacking depth in some places, but I think the story of the Florida defense is intertwined so much with the story of the Florida offense this year because mm-hmm. those guys are being put out on the field significantly more than the offense. And, I mean, you're just going to tire. You're, you're going to get tired. You're going to start not tackling as well, giving up some plays. Now, in the second half against LSU on Saturday, I, I thought they really responded well in the second half. Limited uh, LSU for the most part after the Tigers took that 17-3 lead. Uh, the Gators' offense got going. The defense got some rest, and it, and it showed uh, the rest of the game. But, again, the injuries with Nick Washington out, Chauncey Gardner, ankle injury, he's kind of questionable. Jeremiah Moon, ankle injury at linebacker. I mean, they, they need these guys to try to get healthy before Saturday because they're at a position where they can't lose too much more off there, at least, you know, at linebacker because they're they're so short there regardless. And, and they've done well with, I think, getting a lot of the younger players' experience. Some of those guys, they're still up and down. But for the most part, you're not hearing those guys get called out each week for making bad plays. For the most part, they've been pretty solid, and that's that's been important to uh, kind of keep the overall unit uh, productive. Everybody is talking about the jerseys for this week. It made a huge splash when that was released on Monday, and I guess the question I asked you guys is, what's the story behind these? When did this come about, and, and how did this all start for Florida to have this new look coming up on Saturday? Well, anytime you have something like this, there's going to be blowback, both positive and negative. I saw them about two weeks ago. I was kind of like, whoa, 
I mean, you don't see very many uniforms that, that are green because football's played on green grass. You don't want to green on green. Uh, I got a second look at them. They're kind of greenish gray. Swamp green. Swamp green. And here, here's the bottom line with these things, Adam. It's a wave across college football to do something different, to get players excited, to get fans excited. And Florida's finally done it. I think Florida kind of resisted doing this for a long time. You can look at just about every, every other team in, in the country has done it at least once. I thought Florida went all black uniforms for the first time in eight years last year in basketball. The players loved it. Being around them, they, they loved it. The fans loved it. They did a blackout. This is going to be something a little different. I thought it was cool in the video with the uh, live alligator walking onto the field. <laughs> you don't see that every day. But, uh, but granted, I mean, you wonder about the negative. if there's negativity from some of the fans, if that doesn't have just as much to do with what happened Saturday. If the Gators had beat LSU, you wonder if people would say, oh, that's kind of cool. we got new uniforms. You know, we're 4-1. and one. We're just trying to stay undefeated in the swamp, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, if the players like it, and more or less it's supposed to be for them. You know, they're somewhat different than obviously uh, Florida fans are used to. I think they expressed that loudly on social media last night. I do like the move to always add some different element into the uniform each season, at least a game. You know, I remember going back to the Michigan game this year to start the season. They wore a a different kind of uniform that really splashed blue. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was really, and I loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, This one here, you know, I've got mixed feelings about it, but, you know, it doesn't really matter what I think about uniforms. It's not going to make a difference on the field. But it is something that you it's going to cause a lot of conversation, which it has. Maybe they're going to be like Chris. Maybe give it a couple of days to digest and they'll, they'll warm up to it. I know if they go out and beat Texas A&M on Saturday and look good doing it, then people will probably like them a lot more. But, yeah, it's kind of fun to see something different during the season. And it creates fan interest one way or the other. There's no there's no gray there. You either love them or you hate them, it seems like. And the players, it goes back to the players. They like them, so we'll see if it makes a difference on Saturday. Let's wrap up today with our PAT. This week, the Blade Runner sequel came out, Blade Runner 2049. I haven't had a chance to see it. I heard it's very good. Uh, but it got me thinking about best sequels ever. So that's what I would ask you guys today. What is your favorite, or if there's a couple, your favorite film sequels of all time? Uh, I'm going Godfather 2. I had a feeling you would go that. I mean, it's, that's the, it's the most obvious answer. Yeah, I mean, but with that cast, you had Robert De Niro, who didn't speak a, a word of English in the thing, one best supporting actor. Uh, again, they got the band back together with Francis Ford Coppola directing it. And it, it was, I don't think it was as good by any stretch of imagination as the first one, but it certainly was... Uh, every bit of professional job and it had a great story and phenomenal cast, phenomenal acting. But I haven't said that another one that I really liked was the empire strikes back. I think the star Wars franchise kind of died after that one because everything became so contrived after that, especially mm-hmm. when the, all these, all these new sequels start popping up the three in the nineties. And now these, these now, but empire strikes back, I thought was fantastic. And it really kept you going. I mean, when it really it threw everybody a curveball, um, when you, well, I don't want to do the spoiler alert cause you might not have seen The Empire Strikes Back. I do, I do know the spoiler, so uh, I'm not sure if our audience has. I'm assuming that they, they do know the spoiler. Uh, well, like Chris, my initial thought was Godfather 2. But then as I sat here and listened to him talk, I really had to dig deep into my, the recesses of my brain. <laughs> I came out with Smoking the Bandit 2. I mean, it was beautiful. It was, I was at an age, Adam, where I was very impacted by the film. It made me want to be a truck driver for a little while. Uh, Jerry Reed's character. Smokey and it, Bandit too. It, it made me want to drive 
it made me want to get a black Trans Am as I got older. And I liked Sally Field in the movie well before she made a hit in Forrest Gump as Forrest's mother. She was uh, Bert, the bandit's girlfriend. And I mean, that stuck with me. So. <laughs> <laughs> she made movies before Forrest Gump. I was going to say, Scott, you are aware that she actually won an Oscar before she did Forrest Gump, just to make sure you're aware of that. How about The Dark Knight? The Dark Knight's a great one. Dark Knight was a great one, but you know what? You know, honestly, I think I like. Can we go Rocky Three? Going into the Rocky sequels, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I'm in terms of a uh, best sequel. Well, I was a little bit young when the original Rocky came out, and I don't actually remember seeing it back as a kid. But of course, I've seen it now. And you had Rocky Two. My favorite, because I was so impressed by the time, was Rocky Three. It came out when I was about twelve. Clubber Lang. Uh, that was the one that really made it Mr. T a uh, name brand across America. Obviously, it was a big hit. I, to be honest with you, I think that Rocky Three was about the last one that was worth watching in a lot of ways. They went a little too far in that series. But when you ask me the question, that jumps out of my head just as one that I do remember as a kid being excited about. I'll stick with Rocky Three. I know it's not very exciting. That's okay. I guess I would just uh, I recommend everyone watch their movies on Friday night this week because we got a night game in the swamp for the first time this year on Saturday against Texas A&M. And make sure to follow all of Kristen Scott's content at FloridaGators.com and check him out on Twitter as well at Gators Scott at Gators Chris. Gentlemen, thank you so much as always. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Adam. Well, thanks, Adam. Due to the graduation of Jared Davis and Alex Anzalone, the Gators enter this year looking for all comers to step up at linebacker. That void has been filled by a boatload of underclassmen, including Miami native Voshan Joseph. We spoke to the Norland High School product about a number of topics, but began with the one everyone's talking about, the Swamp Green jerseys making their debut on Saturday. Well, my first time I was saying it yesterday, and I was not that I was getting any new jerseys. I wasn't like aware or anything. Like when we so we just sent out the text messages of them, and I was like, "Wow, things are beautiful." <laughs> you know, have a little bit of swag, but other than that, everybody likes it. But you know, we're back to traditional. I think after this, so but we're all having fun with it right now. Going back to last weekend, uh, it was such a tough loss to LSU. Can you tell us what the mood has been like since Saturday night? Well, since that night, you already know, like, we knew they were going to come out playing hard, you know, after that loss to Troy. But everybody was just practicing hard, you know, keeping the momentum up. Everybody was focused. But after the loss, you know, everybody just really came together as a brotherhood. And they were like, okay, we can't lose no more. We can't try to lose no more games. We got to really go out here and really, like, try to dominate these teams. And that's what, like, mindset we've been on right now. So as a team, we're trying to come together as one, you know, trying to go out there and compete with the best. You know, we got Texas them in this week, but we got to try to take them boys on. So we really just in practice right now, just grinding, really. After you have a heartbreaker like that, how long does it take before you're ready to look at film and revisit what happened? Well, you know, it's really on to the next game. Can't really dwell on the past, you know. We lost, we lost, we can't really do nothing about it, but just correct some of the, like, you know, Sundays, whatever. We'll probably just watch film on our own, go over and blow can and do this better, do that better communicate with the coaches and ask, tell them what they've seen, get a little bit of help, you know, that's what you get. I've read that you are something of a, a film rat at this point. You watch a ton of film, and that's something you've done more and more as you've grown as a player. What are you looking for when you're watching all that film? What are you getting out of it? Well, really, like, 
can't really <laughs> tell tell our secrets, but <laughs> you know, we just really trying to look out for stuff like their like tendencies on what they do during the play or something when the play about to occur towards them or something like that. You know, just watch how they react every other play. I don't want you giving any secrets, so I'll, I'll just ask you. <laughs> When you looked at the film against LSU, for example, what did you think that you did well that that your unit can build on? Well, you know that we, I think we handled the shifts well. You know, it's just like really just outside that was killing us. But other than that, we, I think we're playing fine as a defense. You guys knew going into this year that there were not a ton of bodies at your position. How difficult has it been given that and then some of the injuries that you've sustained on top of it? Well, it really doesn't matter who goes in the game at linebacker. You know, we got Christian Garcia, David Reese, Kyler Johnson, Cedric Fred. You know, we got a whole bunch of people. So, at the end of the day, like, we're all getting the same reps, like Coach Shannon said. He put the he put the young guys in with the ones so they can get adjusted to the game and stuff so they won't be scared when they go out there. So, it really not just, oh, we got five people at linebacker. So, we're struggling. It's like we got five people at linebacker and they're going to go out there and ball. If we can take things back for you a little bit, can you tell us about your family and where you grew up? Well, my family is from all over. You know, my dad's uh, from Bahamas and Haiti. And my mom's from Jamaica, and I grew up in Miami Gardens. So how is that? I mean, obviously a very diverse background. Can you talk about how that influenced you growing up? I ain't really see nobody from my family really to go to a major D1 school or even perform at the next level or anything like my mom played softball in high school, but that was probably the furthest she got in that. <laughs> but so I got this talent from my parents, then I could probably try to go use it and go do something with it. What else culturally do you feel like you got from them? I mean, coming from those different backgrounds, coming from the islands, how did that influence you growing up? Um, you know, my, like they're very independent and they're very like strong-minded, so like nothing really gets to them, but they fight through everything, persevere through everything. Like they try to give everything their hardest like they do everything 100 percent. they just try to make anything work you talked about recognizing the talent that you had and, and trying to use it when did you first become interested in football and, and what got you into the game well i've been playing football for a little minute now probably since i was like eight nine that's where i started at were you always a linebacker or were you playing other positions as well no actually in little league i played quarterback and when i got to high school i played Quarterback, DN, tight end, fullback, and all that. Until my junior year when, when Coach Luther Campbell had came to um, Miami Norland, and he had switched me and my homeboy Emmett that played Florida State right now. He switched both of us to linebacker. And ever since then, we, like, excelled at it. What did you like about the position? Why, why do you think you've excelled so much as a linebacker? Because, you know, at DN, you take on a lot of blocks and stuff. But then again, like, I was the type of person to, like, go up fear and rush. I, like, read stuff. So I was, like, kind of, like, a calm player more than, like, I'm going to rush up fear and try to do this. There's such a rich history of high school football in Miami. So many great names. Who were some of the players that you admired on your way up? I'd probably say Amari Cooper. You know, everybody loved Duke Johnson in Miami. Mm -hmm. Teddy Bridgewater. Yeah, that's a lot of them. Did you have a chance to personally interact with any of them? Probably Xavier Rose, I'll say, and we got we got to talk to Antonio Brown a little bit. What impact did those guys have on you when you did have a chance to to speak to them? Just saying that they just came out like the same environment that, that I came out of. You know, for them to be the top athletes and um and also right now, that's like just motivated me more. Like, okay, it's it, it's not about where you came from; it's about what like what you make out of it. 
When recruiting started to pick up for you, what schools were you most interested in and why did Florida stand out? You know, I was interested, probably like only Florida, to be honest, really. Like, they was the only school that was like loyal to me, stayed in touch with me. They like, they, it was like a real family here. So that's one thing that I really liked about Florida. But like growing up as a kid, my dream school was Louisville. Hmm. But I didn't um, go to Louisville because I feel like they offered me after the fact I committed to Florida. Why Why Louisville? That, that seems like kind of a, a random school for, for a kid from Miami to, to be interested in. Well, if you don't know, like, it was a linebacker named Keith Brown. I used to go to um, Miami Norland. Yeah, that, so like, I used to look at Keith Brown a lot. And then, you know, Teddy went there. Mm-hmm. So it was like, dream school. Now, one thing you did that's pretty unique, I know you had a chance to play with the U.S. national football team which I'd never heard of until I did some research on you. Can you tell us about that experience and how you got involved? Well, that experience was great. You know, they actually reached out to my coach. and was like, okay, we want to invite Sean to the um, USA game since he's not going to the U.S. Army one. And I was like, okay, where is it at? They were like, oh, Dallas, Texas. And I was like, where are we playing at? They were like, oh, <laughs> the Cowboys Stadium. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I want to go. No pressure, no problem. Now, you've become known for some really big hits during your time, especially in last year's LSU game against the quarterback, Danny Etling. I know you're asked about this all the time, but what do you remember about that play and then the response that you got after it was over? Well, I really was just playing football, you know. I had to cover Leonard Fournette in the flats or whatever. And then I seen um, Danny start running. So, And then Fournette, like, he went to go block our DN, I guess. And then Danny came to the to the sideline, I was like, this is going to be me or him. <laughs> so I just made a hit. When something like that happens and, and it goes viral and everyone's talking about it, I mean, are you just, are you getting hit up on social media or people texting you all over? I mean, how much did that change when people know your name suddenly overnight? Yeah, that was, that was the biggest thing, you know, but I'm extremely humble, you know. I'm just like grateful that I was putting that predicament, but at the end of the day, you had to move on. Like, it was the past. And I got I got a whole season ahead of me. Now you also made some news with a big hit this year, but that was unfortunately for the targeting call against Kentucky. Can you take us through that play and what you learned from it? Well, actually, I thought I didn't really make a foul, but you know, like it, whatever happened happened. But the ref, like the way the play was set up, like okay, I was supposed to play like the backside. So the tight end had crossed over, and like when he came, like I thought it was legal that I could like. Like hit him, so that's what I did. And then when I went to go, I seen the quarterback was running because he'd been running all game. So when I made the go make the tackle, he slid late. And then I guess like they threw that on me. I'm sure that uh, your your teammates don't like to take those big hits in practices and scrimmages, but I'm curious, which are the toughest players to bring down when you guys are scrimmaging? Like I feel like all of them really, because everybody goes so hard in practice, we like treat it like a game, so. Like, you know, the running backs, they give us a lot of work. How I would appreciate them. Like Malik Davis, Michael P. Ryan, Mark Thompson. You know, no matter who it is, everybody going like, get the same look. Have you figured out the secret yet to tackling Kadarius Tony, or is that still tricky for even you guys? Yeah, that's still tricky for a lot of us. <laughs> Too shifty. Moving from your freshman to your sophomore year, in what ways do you feel like you've grown the most as a player? I'd probably say... Like, just growing up and, like, really learning and understanding the game. Just being on the field, you know, like, when last year, I was kind of anxious, you know. Like, I never really played college football, so I'm out there for the first time, first year. And it's like, 
all my anxiety is built up. So I'm like, I'm nervous and scared. Like, I don't know what to expect. And now, but now after last year, you know, like, I just play the game. Last year, you had Jared Davis and Alex Anzalone leading you, who were such vocal leaders, not just for linebackers, but for the defense as a whole. How much different has it been without them around this season, and how have you adjusted to that? Well, it, like I really adjusted to it, you know, because like they basically taught us everything that we know now. They basically like gave us the leadership. We're like, okay, you guys, it's on you guys now. We, we got to go. Like it's time up for us. So y'all just got to do it. Y'all got to do it. So we really learned everything from them. We like try to bring that into like every linebacker that that ever comes here now. How much have you been able to talk to them since they've been in the NFL, and, and what do they say about it? You know, we get to talk a little bit now and then, but, you know, other than that, they're, they're very busy guys. Now they're like, it's a job now for them. So, like, they got to focus on that. But if I talk to them, I'll say, like, what's up, brother? They'll hit me back and say, what's up? I'll have a good one. Can you just tell us about, you know, night game in the swamp, Texas A&M. How exciting is this for you guys to get back out and, and be in those new jerseys? Well, you know, at the end of the day, we still got to go out there and just compete at a high level that we know we can, and just going out there and just texting at them was a great time to, like, bounce back, you know. Everybody know we took a tough loss, but we're just going to go out there and play a half-heart game and let the best man win. Well, Voshan, we wish you luck, and thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. The Gators have produced a bevy of game changers on the defensive line in recent years, and that trend has no doubt continued this year with the emergence of even more young playmakers. Jeff Cardozo caught up with Coach Chris Rumpf to discuss the growth of his unit, beginning with a focus on the depth that has been their calling card. Yeah, man, it's, it's a good thing. It's, it's great to watch it. Because I think competition brings out the best in, in not only yourself, but everybody else. Let's talk about some of those guys. Because, you know, Jordan Sherritt now, the last uh, year, and uh, probably a, a lot of anticipation. Man, this thing's running out. I'm going I'm to work my tail off. So he's been good, hasn't he? Oh, he's been great, man. He's been a leader. And like you said, you know, it's last year. You want to go out uh, on top. And, and, you know, he he understands that we have a young group. And so he saw like the grandfather in the in the room. So he's he's leading those guys and doing a great job of coaching them up and also uh, just being that guy for them, somebody they can you know go talk to if they have any problems or they don't understand what's going on. So he's been tremendous for us. I'm sure you guys uh, reiterate hustling all the time, and I don't know how many times you showed uh, that play where 99 came in and got after the quarterback, ran down, chased the uh, the guy down the field about 30 yards. But I'm sure that's uh, that's something you're proud of and, and something that uh, you probably instill in all these guys. Oh, yeah. We always talk about chasing the ball, and they were excited to, to get that finally on film. And also for him to have the success of that play because if you come to our practice, he, he does the, the same thing daily. He's always chasing the ball. He's always running and hustling. And the thing that that play did was show it to the team, and it's starting to spread around. So everybody else, you know, they want to go viral like he did on the, uh, Twitter and all that stuff. And those guys are hustling, and, and they see and they understand what it takes. I know the, the difference from freshman to sophomore, usually you see things, you figure it out. Was there a change for him? Because I don't remember it being that much last year, and now all of a sudden just the, the transition to this year. I think it was a mindset. Uh, I think he made a, a conscious decision that, that he's going to put everything into to becoming the best player that he could possibly be. And he wasn't going to have any excuses, going to work hard. And I'm happy for him. And started out in the summer, he would send me text messages and stuff like that, call and leave messages about what he's going to do this year and some of his goals. And we discussed them. And so I'm happy that he's he's finally 
reaping some of the rewards. So now the, the guys on the outside been there, done that. They've been around this program for a while, but you know, you've got a lot of youth there on the on the middle part. So this game is going to be important, certainly probably with the, the run lanes or what they like to do on offense. The guy's going to bring it back there. He's going to try to throw, but he's going to try to run it too. So how do you prepare these young guys for a dual threat guy? You know, when you play a dual threat guy like this, this guy, if he, he finds a crack somewhere, he's going to tuck it and run it. So one of the things we've been hopping on this week in practice is rush lanes and just doing your job and, and taking care of your business, you know, mowing your grass. Don't try to mow your neighbor's grass. Mow your own grass. Let him mow his grass. And I think if we do that, 11 guys um, doing their jobs, then we'll, we'll be fine. Yeah, and I think that's a great point where maybe people don't get. You're not trying to do too much, are you? You're just basically, you guys tell them what to do do your assignment, make it work, and the defense is a cohesive unit. If you guys up front are doing the thing, it makes it easy on the linebackers, makes it easy on the rest of the guys behind them, right? No doubt. I think last week Coach Shannon made um, the D-line thank the secondary for coverage on a sack, and then when the secondary got an interception, he made this, the DB stand up and thank the, the defensive line for applying the pressure, and it, it works together. You know, one of the saying I heard today, we need 11 guys to make one play. We don't need one guy to make 11 plays. So if we can have that mindset, then I think we'll be successful. How's the adjustment process working? You know, that's that's one of the things we've been harping on. Um, you know, we've been pretty good at making adjustment at halftime and coming out and stopping the things that they're doing that hurt us in the first half. But, you know, we got to be able to take the things the adjustment from the sideline to the ball game during the game on the first half. So now the adjustments that we're making in, at halftime are not the same one that we're trying to make on the sideline. It can be something different. The rotation, uh, you, are you comfortable with where you are now? I know you can talk about a couple of different starters. Yeah, uh, the rotation's been great, you know, especially at the end position. You know, you can just close your eyes and just point at, you know, two guys that go in there and play, and they've been doing a really good job. Uh, a little different when you talk about the inside guys because, like you say, you know, you got uh, a couple of young guys. You know, you got uh, Elijah, freshman. You got TJ, freshman. Then you got Luke Ankrum, a sophomore. So those are some young guys. Um, but, you know, going into your sixth ball game here, um, those guys are stepping up and they're doing well. When you look at A&M, uh, some of the things they do offensively, what's the, the big thing that you guys are going to have to try to stop? You know, I think they, they do a great job of getting the ball in the hands of their playmaker. Uh, Christian Kirk is a really good player, number three. Um, their backs are really solid, really good SEC backs. And the quarterback makes it all happen. You know, if, if this guy can throw it, he can run it. So we're going to have to do a great job of stopping the run first and when he dropped back to throw the ball, make sure we have great pass rush lanes and don't give him a way to escape. You know, he's obviously been a part of their offense now for a few games, but he is a true freshman. And this place is going to be loud and rowdy. A lot of people yelling and screaming. Do you try to do anything to, to get in his head and, and mess him up? Oh, definitely. You know, the crowd is definitely going to play a factor. You know, I spoke to some friends um, that when they played him at their place, and it was one of the things that they complained about was how loud their home stadium is. So I'm challenging the fans. We got to make it real loud and be uncomfortable for those guys and show them who has the real 12th man. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Watch the Gators go under the lights in the swamp for the first time this year on Saturday night against Texas A&M at 7 o'clock on ESPN2 and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Despite the upcoming bye week, we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.